The system manufactures students who are smart and talented and driven, yes, but also anxious, timid, and lost, with little intellectual curiosity and stunted sense of purpose. Trapped in a bubble of privilege, heading meekly in the same direction, great at what they're doing, but no idea why they're doing it, says New York Times bestselling author William Dersowicz. Dr. Dersowicz released his book, Excellent Sheep, The Miseducation of the American Elite, after his experiences as a student and teacher at Ivy League institutions. Today, we are here in conversation with him and Caroline Klevanowski, a Stony Brook University student and a news editor of the Stony Brook Press. I mean, rich bankers in New York in the 70s, you know, maybe they would make a million dollars. That was a lot of money. Actually, I don't even think they would make that much. Maybe it would be a million dollars in today's money. Now we're talking multiples of that. You know, and then at the same time, all the changes we've been talking about. College is more expensive. You have to take on more debt. So, yeah, college freshmen are going to give different answers. I don't, again, I don't think it's like your generation is particularly awful or soulless mm-hmm. or whatever, or that the kids in the 60s were any better. People are as good as the times allow them to be. So we have to change the time. My name is Jenny Dodari, and this is The Utopian. We set sail on this new sea because there is new knowledge to be gained and new rights to be won, and they must be won and used for the progress of all people. I want to start off by asking you, to the audience today, what would you say is the purpose of higher education? I think the purpose of higher education is to form a self, which may sound kind of abstract or lofty, but really a much more vernacular way of putting it is uh, help you become an adult, help you become a person who can navigate adult life, which means, you know, not, not even just figuring out who you are, but starting to build who you are through uh, learning, through reflection, through interacting with your peers, figuring out what matters to you, what you want to do with your life, as opposed to the messages and pressures that you've gotten so far in your life that have maybe sent you in one direction or another or left you confused about what direction you want to go in. I guess another way to say all this, and I mean this is somewhat metaphorically, is It's about finding your voice, but not just finding your voice as a writer, but finding your voice as a person. What was the education system like when you first started teaching? When did you become disillusioned with what you encountered? You know, it it sort of dawned on me slowly. I taught for a few years at Columbia as a graduate student, then I went and taught at Yale for 10 years. I think partly just the contrast even between Columbia and Yale was kind of striking. Um, The students at Yale were just sort of like so much clearly trained to be the perfect students. I mean, I really liked a lot of my students, and they were good people. I don't mean to denigrate them. But it was clear that they had been turned out by by a very highly efficient machine. Um, I think also, in retrospect, I realized that was true of a lot of students at Columbia, and, in tr- and it's true of a lot of students everywhere. But during those years, especially at Yale, like I said, it was a slowly growing realization. A lot of it came from the conversations I had with my students, you know, in office hours or with my advisees, where they talked about or they didn't even talk about, where it was just clear, where I had to help them understand how lost they were in terms of figuring out what they wanted to do with their lives, figuring out why they were in college. Sometimes that's a conversation that starts when you talk about what do you want to major in? Well, why do you want to, you know, then you have to ask why. Or talking with students, some students would come in, often they were my favorite students, Mm -hmm. who really were intellectually curious, really did have a sense of kind of intellectual mission and they just felt that the school was not serving them well, actually. They felt like they were really marginalized. Like their desires to get a real education kind of led them to be treated like kind of freaks, you know, uh, almost inconveniences. Right. Reminds me of an experience I had in a writing course my sophomore year of undergrad 
we were assigned this research paper and it was one of the first assignments we were given and I did my research paper on the male guardianship system in Saudi Arabia and I spent hours on that paper and I think it's one of the best pieces of writing I've ever created but the grade that I got on it didn't really reflect the effort I put in whereas the next unit I did a very standard thesis driven paper that lived up to the rubric and I ended up getting an A on that and I mean, I I share your disillusionment because as a student who is intellectually curious, I find myself combating the same apathy that you've been fighting as well. Yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. I mean, and I think think that that's a really illustrative example. It's sort of what I mean when I say, and I'm not the first person to coin this phrase, you learn to be a student, you learn to do school. In the case of these papers, you learn to crank out the formula. Uh, as opposed to the thing you did with the first paper, which sounds like real curiosity and exploration. Right. So it's yeah. it's pretty obvious that we're we've reached a very grim stage. I I actually recently did this survey in my campus where I asked a hundred students if they thought that the social capital they earn by going to university justifies its cost. And actually 81 out of the hundred students said that it did not. So I think it's this really interesting dichotomy we're reconciling with where students are going to college and accruing so much money in debt to build this social capital. But at the same time, they don't think it's worth it and they're doing it anyway. So it raises the question of why and how do we even begin to break out of this culture that we've created where we're not convinced that what we're doing is worth it, but we're doing it anyway? Yeah, I mean, listen, it's, it's, it's a very hard question. Regardless of what the students you interviewed said about their, how they feel about college, and, and I think it's a very valid and important thing to pay attention to, but regardless of what they said, the grim fact is that a college degree it's a really important thing to have just for economic reasons. I mean, right. we, you know, an increasingly bifurcated economy where there are very few decent paying jobs that don't involve a college degree. Um, that may, may not, maybe that that shouldn't be the case. I mean, I certainly think it shouldn't be the case because I think all work should be, you know, well compensated, decently compensated. Um, but here, this is where we are and this is what individual students are dealing with. And that's why despite rising tuition, despite rising student debt, um, people are still going to college and they're taking on debt to do it because it's kind of an economic necessity. Then the question is, so, I mean, I would say there are at least two questions into which your question can be divided. You know, what can we do to, to kind of turn the ship around, which I think is a complicated question. And the other question is, what can an individual do to kind of save themselves from the system? I wrote the book to answer both questions, but it's really the second question that I care about. And it's important to recognize that you don't have to change the whole system to save yourself. And you can save yourself even within the context of a really broken system. Sounds like kind of you guys are already doing, the two of you, just just from the way you're talking about this. It says to me that you've become conscious of these issues in a way that's leading you to conduct your college education differently. Right. Hopefully. Yeah, but even then, sometimes it doesn't feel like it's enough because, like you said, with your students who were intellectually curious, you're in such a fringe that there aren't a lot of people to share your experience with. So I guess, you know, I spent a lot of my freshman year in undergrad especially thinking about how can I tackle this problem of student apathy. We go to a state school where a significant majority of the students are in the STEM field and a lot are in the biological sciences hoping to go into medical school. So we see a lot of this machine-like behavior replicated. I I remember I had a friend freshman year of undergrad and one day we were taking the train home together. She's a biology major and I asked her, why are you studying this? And she was like, th- that kind of question makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> that really just says it all there doesn't it it does but you know then we kind of then I ask myself how is it that a person who is very brilliant who's clearly educated has come this far in her academic career but a question of purpose scares her how do we change that do we start earlier on in the academic career are we not emphasizing philosophy and literature enough what can we do to really change things around? 
First of all, I don't think there's just one answer. I don't mean that there are a series of alternative answers. I mean, a bunch of different things I think need to happen at once. You know, yeah, I mean, yes, I think it would be great to emphasize philosophy and literature and other humanities subjects much more in college before college. But I'm under no illusion that that by itself will make a difference because the truth is just forcing people to study those things if they don't want to, if they don't understand the value of it. It, it just makes them hate it. It just becomes a chore, which a lot of distribution requirements, especially, you know, the humanities courses people have to take, are treated that way. So what really needs to happen is to change the way people approach their education, right? Why, why am I doing this in the first place? And it sounds like the person you're talking about, of course, she wouldn't even answer why she wanted to do it. But I suspect, you know, very often people follow these career trajectories because, they think they will lead to wealth. They think that wealth will lead to happiness. Um, also, they're more prestigious. They're higher status. Uh, all of which is to say that they are the kinds of careers that there's a lot of sort of social incentive, social reward for following. I also think that the way that we've constructed the system now, and this is really the thing that I most saw with my students and people talk, I talk about as hoop jumping or the title of my book, Excellent Sheep, is that you're so busy doing school that you literally don't have time to think about what you want to do, why you're studying what you're studying. You have to be kind of good at everything without really being able to immerse yourself in any one thing. You know, sometimes I say it's like the way little kids will instinctively dance, but then by the time you get to be a teenager, most people are very awkward about dancing. You know, they're very self-conscious. They sort of, So it's not like you have to teach people to dance. You have to teach them not to. And one of the things that gives me hope is that I think you don't really need to teach young people to want to be passionate about things or to want to be curious about the world. I think those are very natural to us as human beings. The problem is we've constructed an educational system that is very good at teaching people not to be passionate and not to be curious for the reasons that I just said, because you're not rewarded for that. You have to jump through the hoops. You have to check all the boxes. So you get to be a freshman in college or a senior in college or a third-year medical student, and you, you've just been going through the motions without ever thinking about why. So, yeah, philosophy, humanity is terrific, but really we need to change that system that prevents people from approaching their education as a way of exploring the world, exploring themselves, you know, building a self, as opposed to, don't make me think about what I'm doing, I just want to get a good job. Right. Wages have stagnated since the 1970s. And you talked about this student seeking reward and essentially being hoop jumped and dancing for a job afterwards. Do you see wage stagnation as a symptom or a cause of the vocational training we see in higher education? I think it's part of it. I don't think it's the whole explanation, but I, I would say wage segregation and, and the broader issue that that's part of, which is inequality, right? So as the more we divide society into winners and losers, the harder it is to kind of support a family on even two middle class, let alone working class incomes. And the more, you know, we expect people to pay for college, you know, it becomes very understandable that people just see college in vocational terms. I mean, I really get that. It's not like Young people today are soulless and don't care about things. Look at what we forced them to be. You know, I don't idealize the 60s, the 60s in capital letters, but just look at the fact that even leaving aside sort of student activism or anything else, just the two facts that the percentage of students majoring humanities and other liberal arts fields was much higher then, and the cost of college was much lower. I mean, in a lot of systems, it was free. Like the University of California, it was free. Those two things are related, right? And, 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 and the third thing is that society is much less unequal, right? The post-war decades were, the economists call it the great squeeze, I think, uh, or something like that. The great contrast, the great compression is what they call it. So in other words, the top and the bottom came much closer together. Mm -hmm. And we had we really created the first mass middle class in the world. So, you know, young people could approach the world with much more confidence, sense of security, economic optimism. So they were more free to study just what they were interested in college, which is really all I'm asking for. I'm not saying everybody should be an English major. I'm saying <laughs> study what you're interested in and know that it's going to lead to a good, it's going to lead to interesting work. It's not that we've become a poor country. 
We're still a very rich country by per capita GDP. We're the richest other than a few like little Liechtenstein or something. It's just the way we distribute the rewards of this economic engine that continues to hum along are just absurdly unequal. So people don't have the same freedom to make the choices that I think really should be everybody's right to make, everybody's birthright. Right. And we definitely see this, especially with America being one of the only developed countries that has inequality rates as high as it does. It seems like the rest of the Western world is addressing this issue in many ways. Right. And so in the Democratic primary debates, there's been a lot of talk about free state tuition for, for colleges and as a way to help ease this. And how do you think higher education will change if those policies come to fruition? Yeah. So first of all, I should say that I'm a big supporter of that. I say that in the book. Suffice it to say, as I said before, that it's not like we didn't used to do this. It's not like this, this crazy idea. How could we put, we used to do this, right? Um, I, what, what, how would that change? Well, first of all, a lot more people would be able to go to college. There's a statistic I cite in the book. I don't know what the current numbers are, but every year there are literally hundreds of thousands of smart, lower-income kids who can't go to college, and probably an even larger number who have to drop out of college. You know, college completion rates, especially at public universities, are really bad. Mm-hmm. Like six-year completion rates are like in the 60% or something like that in public universities. And the reason people drop out is mainly because they can't afford to keep going. You know, they can't pay for it or having to work at the same time, you know, makes it even harder. So I think it would be a huge boon to access, right? I think another thing would be that if people weren't getting out of college with a lot of debt, they could make more choices about their vocational future, about, I mean, this is something economists talk about. Young people have more trouble buying a house now, starting families now. All that stuff tends to get delayed until later in life. That's not about college, but that's important too. One thing that I haven't thought through, but I think would clearly be a big change, and I think a lot of people are afraid of this, is that if public universities were free, they would become a more attractive option relative to private universities. I don't have a problem with that. You know, I recently got back from a study abroad in Spain, and public universities are the go-to for everybody. And it's, it's not bad. The quality of education is phenomenal. I actually found that my education in Spain was significantly better than what I am receiving in education in state universities here. So you're right. It is a significantly more attractive option, especially now with the debt burden essentially removed. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, again, when, you know, we, we build great public university systems. Some of them are still kind of great, but they're under threat. Like, you know, again, California is the obvious example. When you withdraw funding, things go downhill. It's just the way it works. So part of this massive shift toward, of wealth towards the already wealthy has also involved a massive shift of wealth towards the already wealthy private universities. Mm-hmm. I think one of the reasons that Stanford and Harvard and Columbia have admissions rates of 5 or 6% now, whereas a generation ago it may have been in the 20s, is because public universities are are a worse and worse option, and people who do have a choice are stampeding. You know, there's a very there's a very narrow door that you have to shove your way through. Um, and again, there, there's no reason that it has to be that way. It's just we've made choices, mainly because of money in the political system. We've made choices to do things this way and to make it much much harder than it has to be. Right. I mean, I think that a, one of the reasons the admissions rates in these elite institutions is so low is because there's almost this idealization of these elite private institutions since a very young age. So many people, even if they're from low income or high income, are going through extreme measures to get into these universities because low income communities, if they are trying to get into these institutions, see it as a way out. And high income, you just kind of want to perpetuate the cycle of generational wealth. So you're trying to get into these quote unquote best institutions. So, you know, going on, do you think that we need to remedy this culture that we have almost where we seem to deify these elite institutions? And I mean, I would say yes. So that's definitely a leading question. But how do we go about doing that? Well, but here's the thing. First of all, how we go about remedying something like that, you can't really address something like that directly. You're talking about cultural attitudes, and there's no way to go at that directly. But 
you know, the Ivy League, I mean, it was formed as literally, it was a sports league, it was a football league in the late 19th century. And Harvard, Yale, and Princeton, I mentioned this in the book, were already talked about as the big three. So they became these kind of iconic institutions. And the whole culture that surrounded them and the prep school, and it was already, I mean, it was too early for movies, but already in literature, in the popular press, in the popular imagination, they already had this mystique. So that's not new. And I don't think that anything is going to dislodge that to a certain extent for the foreseeable future. But before we started to defund public higher education in the 70s and in the 80s, and that's when this whole crazy admissions arms race started. In the 50s, the 60s, the 30s, you know, people still idealized Harvard, Yale, and Princeton and the Ivy League in general, but public universities were still much more attractive options. You talk about immigrant communities or low-income communities wanting, you know, this is like my shot to make it. You didn't have to think that way then. Just going to the state school was a really good option, especially because it was free. So I think if you made if you made public universities free, and I mean this is really important, really important, you have to fund public universities at a level that's going to enable them to do a good job. And those two, those are separate issues. So it's going to mean not just shifting how you know how the money gets to the state schools now, does it get from students and families or does it get from taxpayers, but how much money is going. Once you do that, I think it'll make a big difference. And so, for example, even in California, yeah, I mean, there's still plenty of upper middle class California families who aspire to send their kids to Stanford and to Ivy League schools. But it's much less crazy than it is in the Northeast because you still, I mean, the California school schools are still great schools. You have like nine, you know, large public universities at the UC level, UCLA and Berkeley and Santa Barbara. And public universities are actually much more attractive there. And the sort of fetishization of the Ivy League is much less. Culture is downstream of economics. It really is. If you change the economics of state tuition, do you think you'll see a rise in the humanities and student culture just because people will be able to study what they want at their own rate? And so do you think you'll see a flourishing of the humanities, the arts, rather than some of these vocational training or, you know, yeah. an intense pressure on STEM? I, th- I don't think it's going to do that. I don't think that it'll do it all by itself. I, I, do, I do think it would help a lot. Yes, I do. The reason it's not going to, you know, be the magic wand is that there's still a perception. It's not a reality, but there's still a perception because whatever we do to equalize higher education if the economy is still equally unequal as it is now, people will still perceive the STEM fields as the ticket to you know, affluence. Again, that's a misperception, but it's one of the big things that's driving this move to STEM fields and other vocational majors. So yes, I think if people were free, didn't have the debt burden, the tuition burden, they would a lot more of them would study the humanities and the arts. But we also need to do something about the other stuff too. So what are just some things that you think we can do? Do we start earlier than higher education and fix the models there? Or do we go outside of education and try to remedy inequality through these mediums? And of course, there's more than one answer. But what are just some things that you would say we could work toward? Well, I mean, yes, I think that the biggest big picture is tackling inequality at the societal level. There are many, many reasons we need to do that. It's really, to me, it's the great sin, crime, problem of contemporary American society. So many of our social ills flow from this massive and ongoingly widening inequality. I mean, we've been talking about free public college. We also need to talk about what funding looks like in K-12 through education, because unlike, I think, any other industrialized country, we fund K-12 through mainly at the local level, which means that some schools and some kids get much more money, much more resources than other kids. So you're already starting with severe uh, educational disadvantages. I think I quote a statistic in the book, in the last 50 years, the gap in educational attainment between black students and white students has been cut in half, but the gap between poor students and rich students has doubled. So we need to address that. In terms of changing the culture of sort of the high pressure hoop jumping, 
I mean, this also relates to what we're saying. It, it, it flows from the college admissions process. I mean, to an extent that I think maybe people don't appreciate enough, maybe you guys do, everything that happens to a college-bound student happens because of the admissions process at selective schools. Maybe not every college-bound student, but every student who's bound for a selective college, and certainly Stony Brook would be one of them, it's all determined by sort of the, the, the ultimate sort of bottleneck they're going to have to pass through. This is why you're taking, you know, I don't know, 8, 10, 12 APs or however many mm -hmm. APs you take and doing all of these extracurricular activities, most of which are meaningless and everybody knows, well, maybe not everybody knows they're meaningless. The people doing them know that they're meaningless. So, yes, we need to, we need to change that. We need to change that system. But again, Harvard etc. can devise a different admissions process. But whatever process they devise, students are going to compete in this insane arms race to with each other to be the best for whatever, you know, like I said, if students were told that they needed to stand on their heads, they would stand on their heads and the <laughs> best headstanders would get into Harvard. So, but look what happens if you make public college free again and really great again or really great for the first time, then people aren't going to feel like they need to satisfy Harvard criteria. There isn't going to be the same kind of bottleneck. There isn't going to be the same kind of admissions competition. So you will no longer have to feel as a you know high school junior that if you get an A- minus on one paper, your life is over. Right. You mentioned um, that K-12 through education also needs to be uh, emphasized and funded, but at a local level, like some areas are underfunded and you see this, especially with specialized high schools and some in New York City. But any sort of federal attempts to equalize K through 12 education, like Common Core, haven't really succeeded. And there's been a lot of backlash. So how do you equalize it? Something that isn't a local level. Well, Common Core is a set of standards, right? I mean, there may have been some money associated with Common Core, but Common Core is a set of standards. It was an attempt to not to equalize in the sense that I'm talking about, but to introduce some kind of uniformity. Uh, and I should say that I, I don't think all the intentions behind Common Core were bad. I think maybe the implementation was bad. But standards in some states were just terribly low. You know, kids just were not getting educated. So it was an attempt to address that. I'm talking about something else. I'm talking about mainly schools now are funded through property taxes. So you live in a rich place, you have good schools. You live in a poor place, you have bad schools. In Canada, for example, and other advanced countries, they're funded the same way uh, any kind of federal program is funded, let's say. You know, the military, uh, Medicare. Taxes are collected nationally and they're distributed nationally. So that's what I'm talking about. And that way you can equalize funding. You can send the same amount of money you know, per student to rich communities and to poor communities. I think actually in Canada, they may even send a little bit more to poor communities to try to equalize the inequalities that come just from growing up poor. Now, that sounds like, uh, it sounds like even more of an impossibility, quite mm -hmm. frankly, politically speaking, than free public college. But I mean, if we're ever going to have opportunity, I think even, I don't know what conservatives say now. At least they used to say, well, we're not for equality of outcome. That's not fair. Some people work harder. But sure, we believe in equality of opportunity. Yeah, well, if you believe in equality of opportunity, you have to mean it, and that's what it means. It means everybody gets the same chance. So do you think funding is the primary source of these inequalities in education if we were to hypothetically collect taxes on a federal level and distribute it equally among all of these communities? Do you think that would solve the issue? Or is there something that is equally critical that you think needs to supplement an initiative like that? Because uh, I, I recently read this book called Evicted by Matthew Desmond. Uh, so he talks about how evictions and housing instability in low-income communities is causing students to essentially not be able to stay in the same districts and be able to stay in the same schools. So, I mean, the, the, where that question is coming from is that if we are to create this equality of opportunity, it seems that we need to do it in this very intersectional, very holistic level. So I was, I was wondering yeah. if there was something like that yeah. that you were 
thinking about that could make the initiative even more powerful. And you're right, maybe we're certainly not ready for it. The political sphere is so polarized, but it's important to talk about, I would say. No, I mean, listen, you're right. I mean, you're right about both things. First of all, we, we should be talking about it. We should be putting these demands on the table and also just raising awareness of what's actually going on and things that seem impossible now. But even when my book came out five years ago and I said free public college, I wasn't the first person to say that, but there weren't a lot of people saying it. And there was one review that said, like, this is this is ridiculous. This is a crazy idea. And not only has it now become a very mainstream position, but there are some states that have started to implement it at least. So we should, yes, we should continue. We should say everything that we think needs to happen, no matter how impossible it seems now or how far off. The other point you're right about is that, it, of course, isn't just about schools. And, you know, edu educational attainment and just general well-being in the world are about much more than where a kid goes to school. So it needs to be a holistic approach. And I'm, I'm not a public policy expert. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not even a public policy expert when it comes to education. Certainly, when it doesn't come to education, I'm not. But um, right. one idea has always been, like, yes, these are communities with a lot of problems, a lot of pathologies, a lot of disadvantages, and kids and families with a lot of... But school, at least, is the one place, and it's a significant chunk of a kid's day, where the services can be delivered to them directly, you know, where we can give them a decent lunch, even maybe breakfast, where they can be hopefully kept safe, and, and where there's some adults who care about them and who are invested in their well-being and their future. So while school isn't definitely is not enough. And the, and the housing crisis is a big piece of this. You know, I, I think school can be a really good kind of entry point into beginning to address what's going on with, with kids. Right. And even student teacher retention in schools is a problem. Uh, how do you keep the good teachers teaching? You know, one of the things, um, I, I don't have lots of statistics about this, but um, Actually, there was a book, I think it was called The Smartest Kids in the World, <laughs> came out a few years ago and got some attention in education circles. Um, she went around uh, to Finland, which has a great system, to Korea, you know, where kids all score really high on their tests, and to Poland, which, uh, you know, it's not that it is a high-ranking system, but it's a system that's improved a lot uh, in recent years. And she was basically asking, like, what makes these these systems work? And... Uh, and she found the same answer in all three countries, which is um, support of teachers, right? Um, teaching, you know, one of the ways that, that, that our collective productivity is misallocated, in other words, the way money, you know, that we all collectively earn is then misallocated, is that the teaching profession is undervalued. And not just teaching, I mean... Uh, there's almost an inverse relationship between how much social value a profession creates and how much money they get. So teachers, nurses, social workers, you know, they're all kind of at the bottom end of the middle class or professional class pay scale. We've seen teacher strikes in state after state after state. Um, some states have teachers unions and teachers paid, get paid decently and the schools are better, like in the Northeast, by and large. Some states, teachers get, you know, so little that they can go on public assistance. And the yeah. school systems stink. And as you said, there's terrible teacher retention. For example, I think one of the big strikes was in Oklahoma. And one of the things that's been happening in Oklahoma is that teachers have been picking up and moving across state lines to Texas. Texas isn't great, but they pay their teachers better than Oklahoma, where they pay them terribly. So, yeah, one of the things that we need to do, you know, I, I would also say, like, I think there's – um. There's definitely a lot of when people talk about waste in various systems. I mean, first of all, it's not just in public systems. But if you look at – this may be more of an answer than you wanted. But if you look at higher education, the number of students has grown sort of X percent in the last 20 years. The number of faculty has grown at about the same rate. The number of administrators has grown at like four times the rate. So if they're like 50% more students to 50% more faculty, they're like 200% more administrators. And I would venture to say that something similar is happening in K through 12, right? It's like maybe a, a certain amount of money is going into the district, but what is it going for? 
we have these you know, sort of increasingly bureaucratized, kind of regimented systems in education that are about accountability and testing and metrics. And a lot of this comes from like the business schools and sort of management philosophy. And it's mainly just a waste of time. And to me, schools, the purpose of a school is to connect students with good teachers, whether that's kindergarten or college, and get the hell out of the way. So teachers need to be paid better. And I think also the way schools and school districts are run probably need to change. They need to be paid better. They also need to, and teachers, teachers have said this to me, they need to be given the freedom to teach the way they want to. Right. You know, and not have to hurry through the material because it's going to be on the big test. Yeah, and it's really ironic because we're talking about teacher retention. There was actually this recent study where it said that kids with great inspiring kindergarten teachers were more likely, just in terms of correlation, they were more likely to do better economically than later in life. But when we have teachers who aren't paid well, who aren't given the liberty to teach in the way that they see fit, it's almost like they have less of an incentive to be these role models for these kids. So it's this really interesting circular issue that we seem to be dealing with. Yeah, or or you don't attract the same people or you attract them and lose them very quickly. I mean, that's right. You know, people don't go into teaching to become rich, but you need, you know, you need to maintain a certain lifestyle. You don't want to be on food stamps. You want to be able to make a decent life for your own kids. Again, teachers in other countries are paid in in some in the countries of the best systems are paid better. Other professions are paid less. I mean, I just heard this uh, yesterday in a discussion of our medical system. We think of uh, doctors as a really high paid profession. In Europe, doctors make about half of what they do here. Uh, it's one of the reasons the medical systems are so much less expensive, even though they deliver care that's as good or better. And it doesn't even mean that doctors are poor in Europe. It just means that they're not, you know, driving around in fancy cars. But in a lot of these countries. Teachers do a lot better than they do here. So, you know, money is an incentive. And then also I think, you know, you're in, let's say you're in a school and you're trying to do a good job and you're not being paid very well, but you really believe in teaching and you love your kids. But if your job conditions suck in other ways, American teachers, not only aren't they paid as well, but one of the main respects in which they're not supported as well is that they actually spend more time in the classroom than teachers in places like Finland and Korea. They teach more courses, whereas in those countries, there's more time for what they call professional development. You're not teaching during as many periods of the day. You have more time to plan your lessons. You have more time to be mentored by more senior teachers. You have more to mentor more junior teachers. You have more time to talk with the other teachers in your department about you know, what it is that you're doing. Right. So you put bad pay on top of bad conditions and the feeling like, hey, the reason that I got into this in the first place, I can't do anyway, no matter how much they're paying me, I can't do it. Then, of course, people, you know, the best people are going to leave and do something else. Hey, what's up, guys? This is Dalvin here, the managing editor at The Press and also the co-producer of the Utopian podcast with Jenny. Hope you guys are enjoying the show. And I just wanted to alert you guys about the other podcast that The Press produces. If you have some time to check out our other shows like Press Play, our bi-weekly music and pop culture discussion show. That was a great album. That album made everybody an Ariana stan. Yes, yes, it definitely did. That is when I really noticed, like, the surge of Ariana fans. Like, there are certain people that I link with. I link with anybody, but, you know, there's certain groups of people that only hang out with each mm-hmm. other. I'm able to enter those circles. I've been in circles where it's just a bunch of great, flamboyant men jamming their hearts out to Ariana Grande as if I am in, like, a Playboy Cardi concert, you know, walking out <laughs> with a bunch of dudes. And also Full Core Press, where we take all of our magazines resident sports experts and make them talk about the latest in basketball, football, and just athletics in general. Anyways, Carmelo Anthony back in the NBA, non-guaranteed contract, January 7th cut-off cut date, I believe. Started the other day for Portland. What were you guys' takeaways on the, on his uh, re-debut? 
I mean, he started pretty well. I think he was like two of three to start. So, I mean, he definitely showed he definitely deserves to play in the NBA. But towards the end, he struggled shooting. Um, his defense was pretty bad. Then definitely check both shows out on iTunes and Spotify. You can do that by just searching Press Play or Full Court Press. Or you could just search The Stony Book Press on Spotify and iTunes. And look out for that recognizable press symbol on the artwork. See you guys later. interesting because I went to a very selective school in New York City and it's not something that I would flaunt in any way because of the segregation that does exist in New York City but I was very close to one of my teachers there and I actually met him for dinner yesterday and he's left the job at the school that I was at and now he works at a very disenfranchised school district in Harlem where he says that even when he wants to teach, he's not able to do it. And he talks about certain students who have all of these mental illnesses that are not getting attention. And because of that, it disrupts the education for the entire classroom. It's really interesting because, you know, when we're talking about integration, which we haven't yet talked about, but integration is supposed to make things better for everybody but we're falling deeper into this very segregated system where the poorest, the most unfortunate are suffering be because they are not even getting the education that could inspire them out of it. And it's really hard. <laughs> like, how do we even begin to address all of these different issues? Even when we say things like funding will solve the issue or giving these kids resources will solve this issue. It seems like there are so many barriers that is establishing inequality before the student even gets to the classroom. And we have to look at this from such a holistic scale. It makes everything so much harder. It's true. Um, and I think you point to something that ought to be said, which is that, um, well, it's, it is the case, as I said before, that um, school can be a good sort of first step in trying to address problems in low-income communities because, you know, the kids are there and you can, you know, you have them and you can do things with them. It's also true that schools are sometimes expected to solve all of the problems. I would say this is true of college, too. I mean, I'm not against affirmative action, but I think the main problem with affirmative action is simply that it comes too late in the process, right? I mean, it's an attempt to address problems, you know, at the point where people are 18 years old that should have been addressed much earlier, address mm -hmm. inequalities that should have been addressed much earlier. And so, right, I mean, you're dumping all the problems on schools, including, you know, special needs kids or kids who need special attention. I would listen, I would say that with more funding, you can maybe give kids the resources, you know, the attention they need, the, you know, the specialized resources they need. But you're right. You mentioned integration. And from everything I've heard, integration is the one solution that actually works to lower to reduce, maybe even close the gap between racial inequality and education, educational attainment between students of color and white students. Well, why don't we do integration? We don't do integration because the, the white families, and I would probably say the Asian families too, which in many respects track with you know the white statistics and conditions, they don't want to do it. It's the same reason that we don't change the way we fund K through 12, right? We don't go to a federalized system because not just the rich families, not, we're not just talking about the 1%. We're talking, and I say this in the book, we're talking about the top 10, 15, 20%, the class that I belong to, the class that I would venture to say a lot of students at Stony Brook come from, and certainly the class to which a lot of them are headed. This professional class, a lot of them profess, especially the college-educated ones, the ones on the coast, profess to be liberal, vote democratic, when push comes to shove, when the rubber really hits the road and it's about their kids, they don't go for it. Their liberal principles go out the window. No to integration, no to equalizing funding, no to anything that prevents them from passing their privileges on to their kids. That's a big problem. I don't want to go too large here, but I mean, this, this sort of betrayal of the rest of the country by the elite, including the liberal elite. This bad faith of the liberal elite 
I think is a big factor in the rise of Trump. I think it's a big factor in the rise, you know, in Brexit and Boris Johnson in the UK. Everyone who takes advantage of this ridiculously unequal system that I talk about in the book, this college admission system, where the more money you have to stuff educational resources into your kids from before even kindergarten, all the way through money for college, for, for sports teams, uh, money for extracurriculars to buy an instrument, money for foreign travel, money to live in a school district, in a, in a, in a town, in a suburb, you know, that has good schools because it's full of professional class affluent people. This is the way privilege is reproduced by the upper middle class, many of whom are proud, what they would call themselves progressives or liberals, democratic voters. Yeah, I, I mean, it's the byproduct of our culture where education has essentially become a neoliberal model. It's essentially lost its yeah. purpose. So I, I don't think... This is especially surprising, especially when we see colleges almost running on a business model. And like you said earlier, how administrators are being introduced more and more. So when we ask the question of even in state institutions, where is our tuition money going? It's not going back to us. And that's another problem. We see it. It's, it's, it's not as prevalent in Ivy League institutions, but in an institution like Stony Brook, you go to a commuter lounge, for example, and you'll see that the sofa hasn't been replaced in decades and it's falling apart. But it, the money is not coming back to us even when we are feeding into this system. And, you know, it, it's a bigger issue economically where we're seeing that money is not falling into the hands of those who need it the most. And we're seeing it replicated into the education system where even when we are paying tuitions, to, it's, it's exorbitant. We shouldn't be paying $6,000 a semester to receive an education that we could use the internet to receive for free, but it's not coming back to us. And I think that's the problem. But I actually want to go back to a quote that... Caroline actually found in your book and she had this question and I just wanted to direct it to her because it's a really, really interesting question. Right. So you mentioned that in 1971, 73% of freshman students went to college to develop a meaningful philosophy of life and 37% at the same time went to college for to get off financially. Uh, in 2011, it's 47% and 80% respectively. And you say... Right. You know, we have been loudly announcing that happiness is money with the side order of fame. And I was wondering, who is relaying that message? I think it's coming from everywhere. You, was it like 71 to 2000-something? I mean, I was born in 64. I graduated from high school in 81. I graduated from high school the year Reagan was elected. I mean, he was elected in the fall of my senior year. And ever, I would say ever since then, but really his election itself was a symptom of something that was already happening. Which I mean, you you just said neoliberalism. It was this big shift in in not only in public policy but in in philosophy, in 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 ideology, in the way that people thought about what society was about, what we owed each other, what the role of government was, and therefore what the role of college is, what you should want out of life, and the ideological piece and the financial piece, the economic piece went hand in hand because the kinds of reforms that Reagan and his successors put into place, which is what led to this ridiculous inequality we have, as we've been saying before, that's going to change people's attitudes. That, that kind of inequality is going to change people's attitudes about what matters in life. Another thing that happened in the 80s was that all of a sudden, for reasons that partly have to do with specific changes in the financial industry, but all of a sudden, people were being hired out of Ivy League colleges and other colleges, maybe Stony Brook too, straight for Wall Street and then eventually straight for consulting to make huge salaries. You know, like kids could graduate from college and make more than their parents did straight away. Like this is not being a doctor. This is not 10 years of training and then you work your way up and you make a lot of money. This is like straight away, you know, and the sky's the limit. Greed is good, right? Right. So – Listen, this, of course, has an effect on, you know, and it, I mean, it resonated through popular culture. Dallas, if you, if you know what that was, right, the big sort of primetime soap opera about a rich Texas oil family. I mean, there was a whole change in representation, in attitude, in, in ideology, in the images that people were consuming. 
And in some ways, I mean, there have been a lot of cultural changes since then, but in some ways, it's still the same. Uh, may not be Dallas now, it may be Silicon Valley now. Now the image is everybody wants to be Mark Zuckerberg. That's what people aspire to. And when you can, you know, when you can have wealth that approaches nine figures, it just changes the whole mentality. It just changes the weather. I mean, rich bankers in New York in the 70s, you know, maybe they would make a million dollars. That was a lot of money. Actually, I don't even think they would make that much. Maybe it would be a million dollars in today's money. Now we're talking multiples of that. You know, and then at the same time, all the changes we've been talking about. College is more expensive. You have to take on more debt. So, yeah, college freshmen are going to give different answers. I don't, again, I don't think it's like your generation is particularly awful or soulless mm -hmm. or whatever, or that the kids in the 60s were any better. People are as good as the times allow them to be. So we have to change the time. Can I go back to something you said before, though? Because I really want to, I think it's an important point. I, I loved what you said about the resources aren't going back to you. Your own mm -hmm. tuition resources aren't going back to you. And one of the reasons I want to focus on that is because we've been talking about this very large scale that none of us can do very much about as individuals. Maybe collectively we can do something about. Um, but even collectively, there are enormous sort of challenges. Mm. When it comes to things that are happening on individual campuses, Students actually can organize and mobilize and maybe make some changes and maybe have a voice. Not only has the, you know, I talked about the increase in number of faculty members versus increase in number of administrators, but as, as you ought to know, and I talk about in the book, there's been a huge shift in the employment status of the people who teach college in this country, especially at public universities. More and more teaching is done by low-wage adjuncts who are on you know, who, who are short-term contracts or no contract at all. They teach one semester at a time, one class at a time. They tend to be paid a few thousand dollars per class. They have no job security, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, this has been a huge shift, and it, it's because it's a cost-saving measure. It gives them more flexibility. It's part of this whole management mentality. So all these administrators that, they, that they've been hiring, one of the things they've been doing is – basically degrading the status of the faculty. I mean, I, I feel like one of the big reasons that that's happening is because of the existence of tenure. What you just said is a very common misconception, and it's used as an excuse to do the things that I've been talking about. It's used as an excuse to attack the faculty. Tenure has existed for about 100 years. Tenure can be responsible for bad teaching. There's no question about it. But it is not any more responsible for bad teaching in 2019 than it was in 1929. This is not what's happening, okay? What's happening is fewer and fewer people who teach in college have job security and decent wages. They simply don't have the time to do a good job as teachers. Some of them do it very heroically, but when you are teaching four different classes at four different colleges and you're getting, you know, maybe four to $6,000 per course, it's just only so much you can do. Right. Why, now, why are these, I mean, listen, some professors, some tenured professors are just bad teachers, and that's a problem too. But why do professors outsource their teaching to graduate students? Because they're teaching huge lecture courses, right? right. I, am I wrong that the courses you're talking about are large courses? Right, for the most part. Some of them yeah. also in the philosophy department, but I think that has to do with the fact that our university is expunging the arts. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, so the professor of record in a lecture course might be a professor, a tenured professor, and they get up twice a week and they deliver a lecture. But the actual student contact is happening for those 200 students, sometimes 600 students. It's happening through a fleet of graduate students who are much cheaper to employ than the professor is. Right. Or fields like philosophy and the arts that are being downgraded, the teaching is increasingly being turned over, to graduate students who are cheaper than professors, even if the professor of record might be an actual professor. Right. I mean, in the arts, a lot of teaching is done by, I mean, a huge percentage of teaching is done by adjuncts, especially in New York area schools, because there's so many artists in New York. So I want you guys to mobilize and get yourself a better couch for the computer <laughs> lounge. And then I want you to say to your school, we do not want to be taught by adjuncts. Yeah. We want to be taught by real teachers. No, that's that's uh, last year I was a part of a diversity council initiative where they were talking about all of these crappy ideas. And I was talking about how <laughs> we need to hold 
teachers more accountable for giving an education that equips students with the resources to do something in the future that has social impact, that not only makes them socially mobile, but in some way translates that to the rest of society as well. And I was talking a lot about this teacher accountability thing, because I'm really crazy about that. And I hate the way most teachers teach. And I was one of the two students in that diversity council, and they never called me back. <laughs> so it's, it's, it, they don't want to hear that. No, no one wants to they hear that. They don't want to hear that. Yeah. So again, I mean, listen, there's some teachers who just aren't good teachers. There's some people who get tenure and just phone it in. I really think that's a relatively small number of people. In any situation, just like we've been talking about the whole time, we've been talking about with students especially, you have to look at the incentives that lie behind the behavior you're talking about. So either we're talking about low-wage adjuncts, or we haven't mentioned this, but it's important to talk about, and I think important for students to bring up, Stony Brook prides itself on being a Research One university, right? On being, you know, famous in, as you said, STEM fields, biomedical fields. One of the problems in American higher education, again, for about a century or more, has been that professors are rewarded more or less exclusively for their research output mm. and not for their teaching. And universities will say that they reward teaching, that they value teaching. They don't. I mean, they pay lip service to it. And this is also why they're willing to go with adjuncts, because they don't care about the quality of undergraduate instruction. And I I mean, I don't want to trade in stereotypes, but my dad was an engineering professor. So, I mean, I would hear him say this. A lot of especially STEM professors can be really terrible teachers, but maybe really famous researchers or great researchers that are bringing a lot of grant money. But, you know, you you try to take their lecture. And like you just said, I think you've made a great point. If you're a kid who comes in already affluent, lots of educational resources, you can withstand a bad teacher. It's not going to make you stop being a STEM student. But if you're the kind of student, first generation, low income, whatever, who needs to be kind of um, enfranchised as a college student, who needs to be made to feel like they belong, um, it's a huge problem when you have, you know, large first-year lecture courses compounded by incompetent teaching. So you're right that good teaching, as well as class size, is a diversity issue. And I mean, I I just feel like you guys, if you guys made more of it, I'm not going to say it would change everything, but I really feel like students have a lot more power than they are using to make the university give them a better education. Make the university put its money where its mouth is when it comes to teaching. Like, you say that you value teaching, well, then you need to hire, retain, promote, and tenure your faculty members, at least in part, based on their ability as teachers. Right, and not just on their ability to get the university money or recognition. It's interesting because... You know, going back to the quote that Caroline said earlier about how you said in your book that we have this culture where we promote the idea that happiness is money with a side order of fame and education should be the one place where that's not happening. But even the professors, the administrators are falling into that trap. Right. And the college system as well. Uh, At least in Stony Brook, you see a rising number of online classes to fit more students (sighs) and trying to get more commuter students so that way you could have more classes or people studying from home, but uh, you don't really have to change anything about the campus, but you still have more students coming and paying intuition. Yeah, yeah, yes, all, all of those things. You seem like you're very done. What do you mean? It's kind of like a slang that we use nowadays when we say, I'm so done, it means I'm fully fed up. Well, I was a long time ago, but... Um, I mean, I, I still care about this a lot. I mean, every time I talk to a student, I care again because you're actual people and it makes me tear my hair out that you're being so poorly served for no good reason. And, you know, I mean, I guess you have to not surrender hope and keep fighting. You seem like a great professor and now you're not teaching anymore, so. Right, that's, that's, <laughs> that's really rare. and Or teachers that go out and say, or professors that, you know, I'm going to go and challenge you and, you probably won't get an A or something, but, you know, you'll learn something and you're going to suffer, but you're going to like it. <laughs> this isn't really about me. This is about, I mean, you know, literally thousands of, of other really committed uh, college teachers who really are just getting screwed by the system, who either have to leave academia, no matter how good they are as teachers, and don't get a chance like I've done to still have an impact on young people. 
right. in this way anyway on college students, or they stay in the system. But like the K through 12 teachers we were talking about before, they can't do what they got into this business to do in the first place. I mean, the fact that you said that it's rare to have that kind of, I, I really liked your description of, you know, the teacher who challenges you and you maybe you won't get an A, but it'll really, make, you know, it'll change your life. It'll really change the way you think. Just like those those students, go back to the beginning of our conversation, I talked about those students who come into my office and say, I really care about learning, want to get into education, people who are thirsty for knowledge, for insight, and I feel marginalized. Same thing happens with teachers who really care about education at the college level. And, you know, maybe you'll hear about a teacher like this and try to find their class, but why is it that it has to exist kind of on the run in the cracks of the system, under threat of supervision or persecution or dismissal for wanting to do what it is that students, you know, have a right to expect every one of their teachers should do. Right. Yeah, I guess at that stage when you do have these teachers who are constantly challenging students to question their beliefs, to question the system as it is, it poses some sort of threat to the institution as a whole. So it doesn't seem like it's in the best interest of to not be so cryptic, but the best interest of the institution or the system to allow for these teachers, because then you're kind of challenging the status quo of inequality, the status quo of power allocation. And these elite institutions, especially, they don't want their power challenged. Or the students who try to go out and challenge themselves and maybe they won't get the best grades, but they're they're lowering the, the institution's overall GPA average. And it doesn't end up looking good for the institution as a whole, elitist or not. So it's hard to encourage both the teachers and the students, it seems, to challenge each other and themselves. You know, I think I think... I think maybe you guys are onto something, but I also wouldn't want to make it sound so conspiratorial (laughs) or even or even inadvertently conspiratorial, because it's almost easier or sort of um, in some sense, psychologically comforting in a strange way to think about it like that, to think that there's this kind of um, this kind of malevolent intention. The, The truth is. You know, Hannah Arendt talks about the banality of evil. I mean, I think the truth is, you know, she's talking about sort of Nazi death camp bureaucrats. I mean, the truth is it's this much more drab bureaucratic reality that that doesn't so much make a point of finding and snuffing out originality in students and teachers. Uh, I was corresponding with a guy who, uh, an American guy who teaches in Berlin, who's written some very nice little essays about this. And what we were talking about, what he made me realize is that you know, you go into a college classroom, and because of the way the system is, right, both the teacher and the student know what the script is that they're expected to follow, know what the roles are that they're expected to fall into. And the teacher is expected to kind of go through the motions, not challenge their students, not maybe threaten their GPA, because they're in, they're, they have no incentive to do that for the reasons that we were just talking about. And the students have you know, their role is to go through the motions and not really care, maybe pretend to care and maybe to kind of do the minimum to get whatever grade they feel they need to get so they can go into law school or whatever their goal is. <laughs> um, because that's kind of how the system has structured their understanding of their role. That's the script the system has written for them. So what's required to get a real educational system going is for both the teacher and the student, probably the teacher first, to step outside that role, to throw away that script and say, we're not going to do what we're expected to do here. We're going we're gonna to try to have a real encounter and a real adventure. But that comes at a cost for the teacher, who's not doing their research. And it comes at a cost for the student, who maybe gets a lower grade or at the very least has less time to spend on their other classes or their you know, internship in New York City or whatever it is they're doing. So it's more, it's, I mean, I think it's more about bureaucratic inertia than it is about sort of active, you know, suppression. No, I, I mean, I, I definitely think that you're right. And you, you certainly just described a utopia, but I am really interested to know how can we go there? How can we inspire these teachers to inspire their students? What's the first step toward that? Is it, do we first need to change our culture or what is it? Because, you know, how do we change? Where do we go from well, here? 
individuals have the power to at least change their individual systems and maybe their microclimate. Mm -hmm. So you guys are students, so I'm going to talk about what I think a student can do. And I think, like I said, there are a lot of teachers in college who really want to be teachers, who are really eager to have a student. I mean, you can't imagine how precious it is for teachers who want to teach to get just one student who wants to learn. I mean, seriously, they go around, they run around to their friends, to their colleagues, to their spouses, telling them about this one student they have this semester. Okay, that's how much it lights up their life. So if you go into a class and be that student, let alone go into a class where somehow you convince other students or you go into the class with other students who want to be that student, who want to have a real experience instead of just going through the goddamn motion, it's not going to work with every teacher. I mean, there's some people who really don't want to teach or who don't know how to teach, but it will work with a lot of them. They're just waiting for that to happen. I think we should try to become those students that, you know, make teachers excited again. It seems like that's what we have been trying to do, but it's certainly hard. But I do remember I had a teacher, I walked into class the first day, and one of the first things he said to us was, the purpose of higher education is to set someone free. And then Mm -hmm. he went around and he asked all of us, why are you guys here? And a lot of people said, to be a doctor, to get the job, but no one said, I'm here to learn or to be a better person. So I think, you know, even when someone shares that insight with you, you are kind of taken aback because you think again, I'm in this system that's supposed to educate me and I forgot the most important thing, which is to receive a meaningful education. (laughs) 